idea. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. It is a really fun uh, privilege to be able to host a good friend of mine this morning. Uh, Dr. Jason Oaks grew up in a cat on a cattle ranch in Goodwell, Oklahoma, so just outside of Guymon. After college, he went to Oklahoma State. He attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with a concentration on biblical and theological studies. Then after a year of work in England, he studied at the University of Oklahoma. So he's, he's appeasing both sides of the aisle here uh, this morning. And, and there at OU, he taught philosophy while he finished his doctoral degree. His academic interests include philosophical theology. There'll be a quiz on this later. Epistemology, so how we know what we know and divine revelation, so definitely not the shallow end of uh, the thought pool there. Alongside his academic journey, Jason has served the local church by holding part-time positions as a children's ministry pastor and a youth pastor. He now serves on the teaching team at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, California, uh, as well as serving as a full-time professor at Biola University. So Jason says his primary hobby is entertaining and being entertained by his wife and kids, but he also enjoys laughing, watching college football, and listening to jazz, all three of which I have done with him. So that's a fun thing. It's, a great, it's great to have Jason with us. Please give him a hand as he comes. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, I suppose it was 16 years ago that I got to hang out with your pastor, Jay Reisner. We took a road trip together. Um, that the road, the trip back to Enid, they were living in Enid at the time. I believe that the only food we had consumed for about 12 hours were uh, cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory and at least a dozen or a dozen and a half of Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, this is what good boys do when they go on the road together, right? There's, it's, it's all you can do. And so we were downing Krispy Kreme donuts as we drove in and um, both of us kind of arrived not feeling too good and um, so that was a, our relationship was cemented 16 years ago um, since then I've grown to love your pastor um, he's wise beyond his years I hope you've recognized that um, there's no one in my realm or in my circle of influence that I will go to first before Jay Reisner even the head of my theology department um, and it's because the Lord has gifted him with, with a certain a genuine amount of, of, of compassion and just wisdom, the ability to, to remove himself and think carefully about something and speak wisdom and life into, your, into you, even if it's truth that may not be exactly what you want to hear. And I'm sure these are things that you already know, and there's probably things that you can tell me about my friend that I don't know. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to take one of the things I can do, if I'm, if I'm asked to preach in a friend's church, I want to do what I can to make him look good while I'm in the process. So that's what I'm doing. And so part of that is your pastor doesn't wear jeans when he preaches, I'm sure, and your pastor shaves before he preaches, and your pastor doesn't go for an hour and a half like I'm going to. So there's all kinds of ways that I'm going to try to make him. Dwight, you said bring it. I'm bringing it, so you better get ready. It's coming, man. All right, so we're going to be talking about God's Word today. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews we're going to look at one passage, and then we're going to unpack it by looking doctrinally at what it's saying. So Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, are a set of scriptures you're likely familiar with, and we're going to unpack this a little bit and look at it more carefully to see what it is uh, that we can get out of this. So we're going to be thinking about doctrine, 
uh, with the hope for application. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Hopefully we're all there. I'm reading of the English Standard Version, just so you know. Um, I think every different translation is a different tool. They all have good uses, so don't think that this is the only one you should be reading and fears doesn't match perfectly. Verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help to approach your word. Particularly as we're thinking carefully about what your word is and what it means and the authority that it should have over our life. We believe that the Spirit works in accordance with the Word. They work together. So as we have the, your, the Bible open before us now, and we're going to be talking about it and thinking about it and looking to it, God, we pray for the help of the Spirit to enlighten our minds, to help us not only understand what's being said, but to to give specific personal applications of what's being said, uh, specific to us, locations where we need to repent, areas in which we need to trust, aspects of our own life upon which we are trying to remain the authorities rather than handing that over to you. We trust that you will do that through the preaching of your word, um, regardless of who it is that's filling the pulpit, because it's your word that holds the power not the human instrument. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I actually didn't think about this for July 4th weekend, but we are going to be talking about a little bit of some patriotic kind of stuff. Uh, what we're going to be talking about, and so we're going to have to do some brain reading for me here, but go on to the next slide. Um, there we go. We're going to be talking about authority. I want you to be thinking about, and this, I hadn't thought about this until the, the, the service was helping me think about, um, authority is an, is an idea that we're thinking about on times like 4th of July. Because the government is an authority that God has placed us under. And I would just, as soon as I use that word, I want you to just spend some time thinking, what is it that comes to mind when you hear the word authority? And maybe it's a person. Maybe it's an institution. Maybe it's even just kind of a guttural, like, ugh, or it could be good, right? So is, is authority for you primarily a negative connotation? Like the authorities pulled me over and I had to pay a ticket, right? It's one of those kinds of, is that your view of authority? Or is your primary guttural reaction of authority something positive? And my guess is there's something geared deep in Americans and probably kind of Midwestern Americans more than the rest where we have, a, we have an ambiguous relationship with authority, don't we? We, we? we respect authority really well, but we also are kind of proud to be self-built people. In that sense, we're in many ways our own authorities. And we want to try to balance this. And we're going to talk about this just a little bit. Um, not too long ago, let's show the next slide. My daughter and I went to um, Washington, D.C. I had a theology conference, and I took my oldest daughter, Damaris, who's here, my wife, and my two sons. Uh, oh, one daughter's... Wait, where'd Stella go? Oh, there she is. Okay. Just making sure she hadn't run away. Um, but I got to take my oldest daughter to Washington, D.C., and when you walk up on the Lincoln Monument, if those of you have seen it, it's, it's incredibly huge. You run up the stairs... 
and you walk up into this room that's five times the size of this, and there's just this huge statue looming above you. And um, of all the different thoughts you might have as you're looking at that, one of them must be, he must have been someone important. <laughs> right? And I am small compared to this person. It's, it's physically, architecturally built to remind you of, this is a person of authority. This is a person that we should think highly of. And in response, that's what authority does, isn't it? In response, I sit below that authority. The authority is larger than me. The authority stands over me. But it's interesting what we Americans do with authority. Here's some other versions of Abraham Lincoln you can find. Here is an Abraham Lincoln doll that you can buy for, I think it's $3.99 on um, Amazon right now. And then there's an Abraham Lincoln bobblehead. I like that one a lot. Um, and then my favorite is the Abraham Lincoln chi 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 You can grow his hair out and cut it how you want. Now, that's a very different view of authority, isn't it? I'm not, I'm not saying if you own the Abraham Lincoln chi 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 you should be ashamed of yourself. It would probably make a good conversation piece in your office. But it's a very different view of authority, isn't it? Because here we have an Abraham Lincoln bobblehead. And who's the authority in that picture? I'm the authority manipulating this historic person. And, it, and it's the idea right off the bat I want us to have in our mind is, which of those views of authority do you have when you're relating to the Bible, to God's Word? Are you standing under God's Word that it's your authority and everything in your life Nothing lays hidden from it. That's what the passage has said, isn't it, that we looked at in Hebrews? Or, and I think there's something in each of us that does this as part of our signature. Do you stand over the Scriptures? That you're ultimately the authority. And you might decide that some of the stuff in here, yeah, some of that's good. Some of that is good for me to listen to. But the rest of that, I'm not so sure. Because authority is one of those things, isn't it? If someone has authority over you, then they either have authority over all or none. That's the way authority works, isn't it? Authority is an all or nothing relationship if that authority makes that claim. And that's what we're going to see the scriptures claim themselves. So I want to have that image right off. Maybe even it's a good time for you to be asking the Spirit right now, Lord, I I think that I hold the Word as as my authority, uh, but what are those aspects of my life in which I hide from the authority of Scripture. Or I, I even like, when I'm reading the Bible, I, I recognize that it's pointing to me need to change, and I just kind of want to remove that part. And we'll look at that in just a second. So Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're going to talk about the living and active part, but let's first talk about what is the Word of God. Word of God has this huge biblical theology backing it up. The Word of God in the Bible is an incredibly important theological theme, isn't it? By the Word of God, what happened in Genesis? Everything that was created, God spoke it into existence by His Word. Hebrews 1 tells us what? Jesus sustains the universe by the Word of His power. So the Word of God, John 1, tells us what about the Word? It became flesh. So the Word of God... When it's used, that, when that phrase is used, it's, it's, it's collapsing, it's tackling a whole bunch of biblical notions. Wow, we're talking about the power of God by which he created the entire universe. It's talking about the power of God by which he sustains the universe. It's talking about the person of Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity. And now we get that actually realizing, wow, that collapses into 
the Scriptures. Well, how does that work? Well, it works a couple of ways. First of all, God speaks and writes some of the Scriptures Himself, right? We have a God who reveals. Our God who reveals, let's go to the next slide, our God who reveals, speaks, and writes certain parts of the Bible Himself. Did you realize that? So in Exodus 19 and 20, let's go look at Exodus 19. We're not going to look at all these verses, but I, I want to look at this one. In Exodus 19 and 20, we see God speaking to the children of Israel. It's not common that people in the Bible hear God's word, that we hear God's voice speaking from himself, is it? But it does happen. And in Exodus 19 and 20 is the Ten Commandments passage. And God's up on Sinai. And Moses and the children of Israel down below. And God has told Moses, hey Moses, I'm going to have you come up to the top of the mountain. And I'm going to talk to you. And then God says some interesting stuff. He says, be sure to not let all the other children of Israel come up, even the priests. Let's pick up in 19, verse 21. So Exodus 19, verse 21, we're seeing how God is a revealing God. He speaks and he writes the word. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. But also the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. What's the problem? The problem is Moses and Aaron are going to get to go have a private audience with God. And the children of Israel want what? They want to come too. Oh, well, that sounds like a cool thing. That sounds like you're going to have like a birthday party with God. We want to go to the birthday party with God. Moses, why do you get to go here, God? We want to go here, God. And so they want to climb up the mountain. And God tells Moses, no, 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 don't let them climb up the mountain. In fact, put up police tape around the bottom of the mountain. We don't want them to break through. You get the feeling that the children of Israel all are up against the fence. You know, like Justin Bieber is going to come into town or something, right? They're just, what's it going to look like when God comes and talks to Moses? What's it going to look like? The God's for their own good says, no, you can't do that. And then, verse 20 of chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words. So we have an instance here where God is speaking his word, and it's the Ten Commandments. We won't read them all. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is on heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is the water below, under the earth. We could read the rest of it, but what I want to get to is the result, the experience that the people had. In other words, what happens is, when God finally started talking, they didn't need the police barrier anymore, because you went from, to, look at verse 18, when all the people, chapter 20, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They weren't hugged up against the mountain anymore, were they? 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see the power of God's word here? We want to hear God's word. And don't we think that sometimes ourselves? Don't we think sometimes, 
oh, I've got a really big situation in my life right now. What I really need is a direct word from God. I'm glad I have the Bible, but what I really need is for, like, God to show up while I'm shaving and just give me a direct word. Or that, that's what I, that would be better. Wouldn't that feel like that's better than the Bible? But sometimes we get little glimpses like, yeah, you know what? It's good for you that God doesn't show up like that. Because what's happened here is God's holiness would be so pervasive in that situation and your sinfulness would be so exposed that the result would not be, I'm so glad God came and told me what to do. Your response would be terror at the word of God. Now, in this particular passage, quite interesting, isn't it? God not only speaks his word, but he actually writes it with his own finger, right? The tablets of stone are written by the hand of God. God could have written the whole Bible that way, couldn't he have? Have you ever thought about that before? God could have written the entire Bible with his own finger and just kind of handed it to Moses. I hear Moses, here's the Bible. You guys are going to mess it up, but here it is. That's kind of the Joseph Smith model of Revelation, right? That's how the, 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 the Book of Mormon was, was, was found by Joseph Smith. It was revealed to him by the angel. Here's the tablets. It's already all written. It's already all put together. You just have to translate it. So there was no sort of inspiration of human authors, which is what we get. Because the vast majority of the Bible was literally written by humans. We have, you want to do a Bible quiz? I, I teach college kids, so I know a couple of things about, about college-age kids. First of all, you have, to give, you have to give some breaks every now and then, right? Because I've said, in, the best thing for me to do is sit in other people's lectures, because I think, man, they're really exciting, but I'm still bored. So I, I realize, okay, that's how my students feel all the time, so that's good for me. It's good humility. Uh, there's only one other place in the Bible that we have recorded a place where God wrote something with his own hand. Anybody remember where it's at? It's, okay, it's on the wall, and someone said, Daniel, you guys pass. As, as a church, you guys are all right. You guys are biblically literate. This is good. Um, that's kind of a funny quiz question, but one time in Daniel, God's finger writes up on the wall, and no one knows what it is, and they have to bring in the prophet to understand it. Jesus writes stuff in the dirt in John 8, but we don't have recorded any drawing or writing, so we don't know what that was. So very small portions of the Bible were literally written by God interesting. Isn't that interesting? But when God does speak, or when God does produce, it generally is followed by fear. I'm not going to look at this, but I think transfiguration is just as fascinating as Sinai, right? Jesus goes up on the mountain. He takes his three best buds, Peter, James, and John, the three guys who eat breakfast with God every day. Have you ever thought about that? These three dudes were more prepared to hear from God than anyone on the face of the earth has ever been before or since. Something weird happens, right? Jesus turns all white. His face is shining like the sun. They got to put on their shades to look at Jesus all of a sudden. And then these dead dudes are showing up and they're talking to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I would be pretty freaked out by seeing my friend turn white like the sun and then seeing him talking to dead people. But Peter, he's, you know, Peter's never, he always has something to say, doesn't he? Peter's like, oh, I got an idea. Let's build some tents, right? Remember Peter? He is, he's not ashamed. He's not scared. And then all of a sudden, if you read particularly the Matthew account of the transfiguration, God comes in a cloud and the voice from the heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And you know what the next verse says? They were terrified and they fell on their faces. Peter, terrified at God's word. Why am I emphasizing this? Here's why. When you read the Bible... Are you reading the word from the same God that terrified Peter? Yes. When your pastor is 
preaching the word? Is he preaching the word from the same God that frightened the children of Israel to the point that they said, we need a mediator. We cannot interact with this God without Moses serving as our Christ figure, our mediator. Yes, but how often, oh Lord, please be with us, how often do we treat our Bibles with such light-hearted folly? As if it's kind of a daily good luck charm. Or nothing more than chicken soup for the soul. We tend to treat our Bibles as, as it's kind of like a basic instructions before leaving earth, and that's all it is. Not, no, 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 this is the Word of God, the Creator of the universe. And to receive a word from that God, first of all, is an incredible gift of grace. Isn't it amazing? Could God have to reveal himself to us at all? No. He could have left us down here, climbing around in the dark, trying to search out what, did God, what would God want us to do? What would God want us to do? He could be laughing in heaven like, like a Psalms 2 talks about that he does to the rulers of this earth. Like, oh, isn't it funny? They don't have any idea what they're supposed to be doing. But no, by his grace, by his mercy, he reveals his word. And we'll race through the rest of this. It, it, this, this first part. Isn't it interesting? So we just said, God could have spoken. He could have written the entire Bible. It's within his ability to do so. But the vast majority of the Bible is written by human authors. So God spoke and God wrote. We call that divine revelation. But humans also spoke and wrote. And this is the doctrine of inspiration. Where, like I said, we're going to be kind of launching from this Hebrews passage, talking about doctrinally, hoping that the Spirit will land it in our lives. Um, Let's look at this Second Peter passage. You don't have to turn to it in your Bibles if you don't want to, but you can. But I've got it up on the slide coming up. Second uh, Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the really important passage for what it looked like that God used humans to produce the Bible. Well, it, it, from the very start, this was the case, wasn't it? Um, God wrote on these tablets. He gave them to Moses. Moses carries them down the mountain. What does Moses do with them? Breaks them because he gets ticked at the people. They're breaking the commands already, right? He gets upset. Then he goes back up the mountain. This is a little funny part in the Bible. The Bible has some funny stuff in it. Goes back up, and what does God do the second time around? He says, I'm going I'm to write you some more tablets. But Moses, you're kind of a hothead. I don't know what you're going to do with these. So this time, make a box and put them in the box, Right? Read it. It's, that's exactly, he didn't tell them about the box the first time. The box was plan B. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Now put the tablets in the box so that Moses doesn't get mad and break them anymore. Because as if Moses is not going to get mad at the people ever again, right? He's only going to be upset. And remember the people, they said, oh, we'll listen to you, Moses. You go talk to God. That was like the best lie in the Bible, wasn't it? They didn't listen to Moses ever. Never did they listen to Moses. Oh, you go. We'll listen. So now God wrote on, with his own finger on these rocks, and then at the end of Moses' writing, the end of the Pentateuch, it says they took Moses' writings and put them beside the tablets near the ark. Now, let's think about that. Let's think about the visual image. You have inside this golden box tablets written by the finger of God. That's God's word. You with me? If we saw that in the museum, we're like, that's God's word right there. Then right beside it, papyrus written by Moses the grandpa guy we all knew. Wouldn't you be tempted to think, well, this, the rocks by God, that's really kind of like 
varsity God's word and the Moses writing, that's like JV God's word. Wouldn't you feel that way? I would totally feel that way. But you know what? In the Old Testament, there's never an inclination that they ever recognize any difference between the two. They recognize that God revealed by himself's writing, and he also revealed through Moses' writing. And they were both equally God's word to the point that they kept them physically in the same area. Isn't that fascinating? The number one complaint that you'll get about the Bible is, why do you care what the Bible says? It's just written by men. If that's true, if the Bible is just written by humans, yeah, you're absolutely right. Why do we care? But the claim of the Bible, according to this verse and many others, is it's not just written by humans. Right? No prophecy. In fact, no, no part of the Bible was ever produced by the will of man. This very attractive picture was produced by one of my students that I used to, I draw this on the whiteboard, and so I had a student produce this for me. No doubt they work for Pixar now. Their skills are incredible, right? They probably work for Disney as an animator. Um, I, they're particularly good in getting the eyeballs the same size. I like that part of this picture. Honestly, she did a better job than I do. But anyway, so we have three different players in this text. We have God the Father. We have a human author. That's the googly eyes guy. And we have the, the autograph and text. We're not going to talk about all that, but that's when we do my class. We do a lot of this stuff. That's, the, that's the, what God wanted. And this, this passage is really interesting to us. First of all, it tells us how it didn't work. Uh, the next slide shows us it did not work. That no, It simply wasn't the case that a human said, I got some stuff I want to get off my chest. I'm going to write this stuff. I'm going to send it. And that's going to somehow become God's word, right? No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So we can just go, I've got an ant coming up, right? That's not how it worked. This passage tells us clearly that's not how it worked. How else did it not work? It also did not work to where God said, I have some stuff I want to give to these people, and I'm going to bypass the human author entirely. We got the Ten Commandments that way. We got this one little part in Daniel that way, but the rest of it has human author involved. And we know that because in the passage tells us men, in fact, spoke. It's puzzling, isn't it? It's not the case that, any, that the will of man produced any prophecy, but men did, in fact, speak. So God didn't cut out the human author entirely. So, ah, got our second whammy. There we go. This is a little, you're doing a good job. This is a little tough. Usually I get to do my jokes myself, but he's doing a great job. The next thing it says, when you build jokes into the slides, is, but he's doing great. We're, we're doing okay. Um, this is how it did work. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Good, the next one. This finishes the picture. God says, I have some stuff I want to give to these people. Ultimately, us, but primarily an original audience. How am I going to do this? I could do it myself. I could produce it myself, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use humans. Amazing. He's going to use sinful humans. Sometimes we use our sin as an excuse, don't we? And we all just, oh, I'm just a sinner. But God... Yes, it's true that we're all sinners, but it's also true that God can use us in amazing ways. God used sinful humans to write his word. Amazing. God uses sinful humans to share the gospel with our children so that they can be regenerated. Amazing. Don't ever let I'm a sinner become some sort of excuse for sin. Let I'm a sinner be fuel for fighting it, <laughs> right? I am so bent towards sin, I'm going to have to double up my efforts. That's a, that's a very different view than, 
well, I'm just kind of bent towards sin, and so I'm just... God uses sinful people in mighty and powerful ways. So men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to the point that we get what? We get the Scriptures given to us. Primarily written by humans in the sense that their hands actually touched the paper, but they weren't from the will of man. This is from the will of God as He carried them along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's wrapped up all in this. Here's a nice little thing. I love to point this out to my students. Um, when you're reading the Bible, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, who do you have within you helping you understand the Bible? The Holy Spirit. It's like a director's cut DVD, right? You're, you're, have you ever watched the director's cut of the, the movie, and the director's like, well, at this point, if you'll notice, the pin falls, and it's all really funny, and we're all like, you know, it's just like no one cares. It's all stuff that the director's telling you what's going on in the movie. We have the author of the text indwelling us as we read it. Do you forget to tap into that? Man, you've got to tap into that. You've got to say, Holy Spirit, I don't understand what's going on here. Help me. It's a great prayer, isn't it? Help me is a really good prayer. I wonder if there's any prayers that God likes better than hearing his children say, Help. <laughs> In any situation, help. So we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, so what we have now is we have God spoken wrote, human spoken wrote. Those are the doctrines of revelation and inspiration. And third, what we see is Jesus. And we're going to run through that. That's just the incarnation. That Jesus spoke... But Jesus didn't write, even when Jesus was on the earth, God in flesh, he didn't write anything. He didn't write any of the New Testament. But what you have is at the end of Jesus' life, him commissioning his apostles to write. He says, hey, I'm going to go away in the end of John, but it's for your good that I go away. I wouldn't believe that if I was one of the disciples. I was like, dude, I want you to stay here. I don't want you to go anywhere. It's for your own good that I go away because I'm going to send the Helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will remind you all of the things that you need to be reminded of. So he's commissioning the apostles to finish this project, to finish writing. And so that's why we have the incarnation, that the commissioning of the apostles is to give them the ability to say, hey, they were to finish this. So at the end of the day, number four, we have the canon. The writings are all collected, and this is a big issue that we're not going to talk about. So what I just, I just finished the first point, and the first point is, what is God's word? Well, it's comes from the authority of God himself. That's why we kind of camped out on that Sinai passage. Don't forget that when you're reading it. And secondly, what is God's word? Well, it's written by humans. That's true. But it's from God as they've been carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus commissions his apostles to finish it. And there, ultimately, all the writings are collected, New Testament, Old Testament, and bound together in what we call our Bible. All right, I've just exegeted the first word of our passage, right? So you're thinking, this is not good. We are going to, we really, he wasn't joking about that hour and a half thing. We are in trouble. Let's go back to our Hebrews passage. Yeah, I, I like this guy. This guy's getting me going here. <laughs> uh, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the process that the word of God came about. But now we want to talk about the product. What is the Bible? So that's how it all came to be. What is the actual product? What, what is it? Well, the first thing we see of the product is we're going to have to, you're going to have to beat me to it because I can't remember what I have one here. Oh, yeah, sufficiency. The Bible is sufficient for all of our needs. So what I'm, right, what I'm just doing here is I'm, I'm just throwing... I'm, talking about some doctrinal categories that if you read an old systematic theology book on bibliology, right, sometimes theological jargon drives us all crazy, and that's what this is. But if you read a systematic theology book on what the Bible is, these are the kinds of categories you'd get. But what I like to do is actually look at the Bible itself. 
The Bible claims sufficiency on everything it touches. The Bible's all that you need to know God and to live a life that's pleasing to God. Just the Bible. Other things can be helpful and useful, but the Bible alone. And let me emphasize this for you, and hopefully this works with the transition. But what I did here in these next two slides is I looked at two psalms, only two psalms, and I wrote down every single thing that these two psalms explicitly says the Bible is sufficient for. Okay, and we're going to read these, and I want you to be asking yourself, do you need some of that? And if you ever answer, yes, I I need to get me some of that. If you're thinking, I need to get me some of that, the Bible's telling you, this is where you get it. Now, I'm kind of cheating. It's only two psalms. One of them is Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible. So I'm cheating here a little bit, but it's okay. So I'm telling you that I'm cheating, so it's fine. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient for reviving your soul, rejoicing your heart, keeping your way pure, giving you delight. Do you need delight? Where do you go for delight? I go to my wife for delight. I go to my kids for delight. God can use those things. What's the primary means of delight? God's Word. Giving life. Go to the next one. It's not all. Strength when your soul is melting. I love that. Hebrew poetry is indeed beautiful, isn't it? I know in a room this size, some of your souls are melting. And you need strength. And Prozac might help. God might use it. I'm not making a joke there. God might choose to use it. But the primary means by which you get strength when your soul is melting is found in God's Word. And our culture has trained us to think, no, 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 i got to go to the medicine cabinet first. God has given us that. It's a gift, but it's supplementary to the primary means by which He's going to help our soul when it's melting. Do you need hope? Do you need comfort? Do you need wisdom? Do you need guidance? Do you need to be upheld and say, my word, who doesn't need these things? Two psalms only. Can you imagine if we created a chart from the whole Bible? Things that the Bible explicitly claims that it's sufficient for. Well, that's a project. Jay, why don't you tackle that one? That'd be your, that's your homework for the week. Yeah, exactly. That'll be the sermon next week. But what, are we try- what am I trying to do? I'm trying to enlarge your view of the Bible. And Lord, please help it to be the case. I'm trying to, to make your Bible more than just some sort of like religious book. It's so earthy and so real and so genuine. Its goal is to say, yes, you are in the midst of a life crisis that God is permitting you to walk through, but I have given you sufficient hope in my word. But how often do we do what? We're in the midst of the crisis and we look to anything and everything other than the place that the hope will come. Because we're foolish. Because we're children. Because we need God's grace. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the sufficiency of your scripture. What else? Well, the Bible is also true in everything that it says. We're not going to talk about this. Um, this we could do, I do two full a full week on inerrancy, which is just another, I think I have some Bible passages to help us realize the Bible's claim about itself is that it's true. Every word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield of those who take refuge in him. God is not a man that he should not lie, or a son of man. He does not change his mind. I think I have two more. This is God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. God who never lies. Right? So God's word, it's, it's sufficient it says true things. Everything upon which the Bible touches, the Bible says true things. Now, the Bible's not attempted to be an exhaustive science textbook. Right? There's no periodic table of the charts. 
in Revelation 24. There's no Revelation 24 either, is there? But, so there's no periodic table of the charts. That doesn't mean the periodic table of the charts is suspect. That's true, isn't it? But it's just that the Bible's not trying to be exhaustive. But when the Bible does talk about science, it says true things. When the Bible does talk about history, what it says is true. Don't doubt that. Right? It's understandable that we doubt that. Uh, but ask the Spirit to help you. So ultimately, let me tell a historical story. Thomas Jefferson, this is we're talking about patriots on um, 4th of July, just accidentally happened that way. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He was a, his religious view was that God exists, and God created the whole world, but basically after God created the world, he just kind of turned his back and walked away. So God has nothing to do with the world any longer. Benjamin Franklin had some deistic tendencies. Um, other than that, it's almost impossible to determine how many of our early, or almost, I always call these guys early church fathers, but they're not, our early American fathers. It's hard to tell how many more deistic in their mindset versus kind of orthodox Christian, and there's a whole bunch of fighting and debates about which ones they were. The Christians try to baptize them all and make them all evangelicals. The, the atheists try to make them all deists. They're probably a spattering of the two. So Thomas Jefferson clearly, though, was the most consistent deist. And part of Thomas Jefferson's view was he loved the teachings of Jesus. You might think, well, he doesn't even really believe that God listens to his prayers. Yeah, but when he read the New Testament, he recognized the truth of the teachings of Jesus, except for when Jesus did miraculous things or claimed miraculous things. Because he's a deist, he doesn't believe in supernatural things. He doesn't believe in miracles. So he just thinks, oh, we'll just remove that. Literally literally took a knife, like the one you see in the picture, that's an old pin knife, took out four different translations of the Bible. He was, he, this was, he was a scholarly guy. Took his pin knife, probably put his tongue on the side of his face like this, and cut out parts of the Bible. Can you believe it? Cut out those portions of the Bible that he didn't think belonged in there. And he put together all these passages after he'd cut them all out. It's called the Jeffersonian Bible. And it's a version of the New Testament that has all the teachings of Jesus without any of the miracles, without any of the claims of divinity about Jesus himself. In other words, not even all the teachings of Jesus made it in. So it's kind of the, whole, the history of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and that's it. The last three verses of the Jeffersonian Bible read, And they laid him in a tomb, and they closed the door, and they walked away. Isn't there more to this story? What is it? Oh, that's right. He's a deist. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. The end of the story of Jesus, according to Thomas Jefferson, is they put him in a tomb and they walked away. Now, I like this image in contrast to the Abraham Lincoln image. Do you see? Who's the authority in the Jeffersonian Bible? Thomas Jefferson's the authority. Thomas Jefferson gets to determine and decide which parts of the Bible are good and which parts are bad. In fact, I, 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 I say this quote because it's important, but I don't even like saying it. Thomas Jefferson said, there's a lot of diamonds in the Bible, but it has to be separated from the dung. There's a lot of good stuff in the Bible, but it's surrounded by a bunch of crap. We've got to cut the good stuff out of the crud. Now, I'm not here to try to just say bad things about our past leaders. It does give us a little bit of historical perspective, though, doesn't it? Sometimes we tend to think, oh, America's, we're certainly in a, we're, we're, 
we're in a place right now that needs prayer, but weren't we in a place that needed prayer when that was our president? Who believed that about the Bible? Haven't we always been in a place that's needed prayer for our leadership? Having people who deliberately reject the fact that Jesus raised from the dead? Right? If someone now ran for president and they claimed that at the outset, they would have a hard time generating enough votes. I do not believe in the resurrection. There's enough kind of Christian baggage attached to that office that, that a person at least has to give some sort of homage still. Now, that's probably not going to last much longer, my guess would be, but it certainly still is the case now. Here's what I want you to be thinking about. Let's go back to your Hebrews passage because you might not still be there. Thomas Jefferson takes a knife to the Word of God and cuts it because he's the authority. But what does the Word of God tell us? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No, 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 Thomas Jefferson, you got it all wrong. You don't get to have the knife. The Bible's the knife. The Bible cuts me. I don't get to cut it. The Bible is the surgical utensil. And what is my job? I lay myself on the gurney ready for surgery. When you're coming to God's Word, whether it's in your private reading or your small group or in the preaching of the Word, are you, are you laying on a gurney with anesthesia in your body? Is it, there's no, you're not trusting anyone more than when you do that, are you? I have no control. I am out. In fact, I want to be out. I'm laying myself on a gurney. I'm telling this person to cut me open and take care of business. That's how we should approach God's Word. That's our authority. Because we're all tempted to be Thomas Jefferson. I'm tempted to be Thomas Jefferson. I'm reading my Bible. I know I'm supposed to love my wife, but then you come across that pesky verse in Ephesians. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. I just cut that out. I don't I love my children, but sometimes I lose my patience with my children. I read that part about how I should treat my children. I'll just cut that part out. Or purify your thought life. Just how many do you think? I would love for you right now. What parts of the Bible do you just pull a Thomas Jefferson? And what parts of the Bible? And maybe for some of us it's ethics, right? We like the way we live, so we just cut out those parts of the Bible. Maybe some of us it's theology. Like you don't really like thinking about deep theological things, and when you get to me, just cut those parts out. So, but I, I, am in, I am inclined to think that each one of us, because of our sinful tendencies, pull out our penknife regularly when we're reading the Bible. I'll put the penknife away. Don't stand above the Scriptures. Lay on the gurney. Let it be the blade. Oh, Lord, you can help us do this. In, in my opinion, I think there's two great, I think I have, that's what we have coming next, with the authority of Scripture. That's what we've really been talking about this whole time. And go on to the next one. There are two authorities that are rival authorities primarily. In other words, why don't we allow the Bible to be our authority? Well, we have rival authorities that we, that we think are more important than Scripture. Some of them could be external authorities, that is, other things outside of us that are more authoritative to us than the Bible. That could be your political party affiliation. It could be popular culture. Well, popular culture says this. It could be whatever, right? Somebody, some group of collected thought that's outside of you and outside of Scripture that completely dictates for you the way you live your life and what you do because that's your authority, not the Bible. And I want to invite you to consider that right now. Do I have these things in my life? 
I want to tell you, yes, you do. So the question shouldn't be, do I? The question is, what are they? What are they? Holy Spirit, reveal them to me. But that's the external authorities. But in my, in my humble opinion, the greatest threat to the authority of Scripture in every single one of you is yourself and myself. Why? Because we've all been trained by Disney and of everyone else to think what? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. It can never lead you astray. Right? You, just, you have this still voice inside your heart, and it tells you what's right or wrong, and you follow that no matter what. That is dangerous, dangerous, blasphemous advice, according to the Bible, isn't it? And I am not exaggerating. It is blasphemous advice, according to the Bible. Did you know there are all kinds of issues that if I just follow my inside voice, I will come to a radically different conclusion than what the Bible says. Radically different. I would not believe in hell if it didn't happen to be in the Bible. Right? I don't want to believe in hell. I wish that hell didn't exist. But I don't, you know, at the the end of the day, God doesn't care what I think about hell. He doesn't care. There's all kinds of views about people's lifestyles or people's actions or people's thoughts or people's words that I would have my own view. It would be radically different than what the Bible says. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get under the gurney, get myself cut, let the blade cut me. I want to bring every thought into submission of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Prayer is good, but the primary way is through His revelation, what He's revealed about Himself. So that I am going to come under that authority of Scripture. I like music. Um, and there's an artist. His name's David Bazan. He used to be a Christian. In his latest album about five years ago, he had rejected his faith. And, one of his, and the whole album is how he rejected his faith. And he's not mad. He's not bitter. He just, he just kind of the problem became too great. He didn't make sense of it anymore. But his, a lot of the themes that come up in this album is how his family and his parents are praying for him. And he's a little bit annoyed by it, but he's kind of dealing with it. He's, he's still a good son. But one of the lines breaks my heart on this issue of authority on the internal. He says, I hope that my mom will remember, as she's praying for me, that she taught me to always follow What did his heart lead him to do? Reject the faith. Mom, don't be sad. I'm following your teaching. You taught me that my heart was my authority. And my heart tells me Christianity is false. Oh, Lord, please help us to not teach our children to put their faith in their fallible internal opinions, but instead on this objective external authority that's found in the Word of God. When you come to it, please invite the Word to speak truth into you. Take your penknife and throw it away. Be aware of what you're doing. Be aware of the times you're standing over this as your authority rather than letting the Word of God be living and active, cutting you open, separating all this stuff, right? If you notice, it separates thoughts and, and, thoughts and intentions. The point of thoughts and intentions is not to Oh, this is what academics have to do. Oh, there must be a difference in the Greek between thoughts and intentions. I wonder what... Da, 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 da. Maybe thought is in this side of the brain and intentions in this side of the brain. Just, that's not the point of the passage, is it? The point is, the Word of God separates things that can't be separated. That's the point. That nothing... There, in other words, we have a lot of really cool lasers now. Lasers can't separate thoughts and intentions. Only God's Word can do that. Technology cannot accomplish 
what God's Word can. And you have this powerful tool in your car seat or in your bag or on your iPhone with you everywhere you go, most likely. And yet, our Christian culture right now has been deemed the most biblically illiterate culture ever. What's that mean? It means not that we don't know how to read our Bibles, but we don't. We simply don't. And I firmly believe that we are in an authority crisis as Christians right now. Because you turn on CNN and you are being told you have got to reject the authority of Scripture in order to be approved by this country. You've got to reject the authority of Scripture in order for us to think you're the kind of Christian that we like. You're being told constantly by everything. You have got you, if you want to be someone who's well-respected in communities, you've got to reject the authority of Scripture because if you don't, you're going to be lambasted and made fun of and marginalized. Please, Lord, give us the ability to, let's look at the last slide, to go skip to, Boom, boom. Right there. We'll just end with this. The Bible is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. The authority of Scripture lands. This is where it lands in your life, isn't it? It changes your thoughts. Theology starts in the head and it works through the heart and it works into your hands and goes out into your life, into your habitat. If your life is not affected by the things you believe in your head, you probably don't really believe it in your head. If your life doesn't look more Christ-like, it's probably a problem that starts with the theology. You say you believe certain things about Jesus, but you don't. And if we followed you around and we made a 24-hour TV show about your life, which would ultimately be probably quite boring if they followed me around and you as well. If they did that, though, would we come to the conclusion that you actually have a belief in the authority of Scripture? Or would we come to a very, very, very different conclusion? Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. By your grace, by your mercy, you have revealed it to us. God, I pray that we would recognize the authority of the word of God when we come to it, that we would recognize this is the same God who's speaking through these pages, that when he speaks, priests are terrified. Peter falls on his face. God, I pray that we would not be Thomas Jefferson, that we would not cut things out of your word. God, give us the power of the Spirit, the ability to notice and to realize and to be self-critical to the point that we can see, wow, we cut, I cut that out of the Bible. Help me, Spirit, to no longer do that. God, I'm praying that prayer for myself. I know I still have blind spots, and I'm praying that prayer for everyone in the room. God, as we come to your table now, God, this would be a great, a marvelous opportunity for us to, if we're feeling condemnation right now, perhaps for things we've cut out of your Bible, things that we're not living in our life, it's a great opportunity to trust Jesus, to confess those sins and to cling to the gospel because ultimately that is the only thing that gives us hope. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.